Welcome to Saber Metrics, the sincere and critical examination of the Fate series. I'm Sierra, my pronouns are she, her. I'm Iris, my pronouns are she, her. Uh, and this week we're talking about the second Fate Zero book, unfortunately. The Mad Feast of Kings. Yeah. Yeah, it sure is that, huh? A very dramatic title, for considering what actually happens. Uh, yeah, three people scene. have a drink together. That's it. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty chill feast of kings. For, to be perfectly frankly, honest. it's the best scene in this book so far. <laughs> I want to be clear. That doesn't make it good. It just makes yeah. it the best. Yeah. No, I I do remember um, when I first watched Fate Zero. This was that scene which is at the end of act eight like it's the concluding part of this particular um light novel was kind of one of the uh like key scenes of the series um so it was interesting to to get back to it here um i i I was actually surprised to see it happen so early. For some reason, I thought it happened later. It was interesting to get back to it here. Um, you know, after after all the sort of ideological changes I've gone through and becoming a communist and thinking, damn, this uh, my read of this scene is different from how it used to be. Yeah, uh-huh. It's not a great scene. No. It's um, It's rough. But we're sort of getting our head of ourselves. We will tackle that when the time comes. Fuck, that's right. Um, we have to talk about everything else that happens in this book first. We sure fucking do. Kill um, me. So let's begin with Act 5. Uh, Iris Veal has taken Saber out for a night of reckless driving when they're interrupted by Castor standing in the middle of the road. Uh Castor, still believing that Saber is actually Joan of Arc, introduces himself as uh, Gils de Reyes. I completely forgot I was going to actually look up how to pronounce these things, so this is just going to be bad. But I don't know how French works. Sorry to all my French and or French Canadian listeners out there. I'm not. Uh, anyway, Castor attempts to convince her to come back to his side. Saber refuses, of course, and attacks him, but Castor retreats and vanishes into the night. Uh, the one comment I'll make about this scene is that I like it a lot more in the anime uh, because they really, they really just straight up like do initial D shit with Iris Veal, and it's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that kind of rules. Uh, back at Castor's workshop, Ryanosuke is attempting to play a human pipe organ he constructed as his servant arrives. After ranting to his master about his failure to convince Saber, Castor devises a plan to convince Joan of Arc that God does not exist and is not worthy of loyalty. He simply has to prove that God cannot enforce judgment on anyone. Because this is Urobuchi writing the historical figure Bluebeard, the plan involves copious amounts of child murder. Yep, it sure does. Uh-huh. Uh, meanwhile, at a Hyatt Hotel in Fuyuki, Kenneth L. Malloy is debriefing with Lancer. I should note here that the way Urobuchi describes this hotel makes it sound like he's getting sponsored by them. It um, does, yeah. I, I actually kind of want to read the, the excerpt just to prove I'm not exaggerating. Uh, looking down from the 32nd floor, the top floor of Fuyuki's Hyatt Hotel... 
There is no building taller than this in all of Fuyuki. The title of the highest building will soon become that of the soon-to-be-completed Shinto Shopping Center. But because the Shinto Shopping Center is still under constru- construction, this Hyatt Hotel is still on top for the completed buildings list. Okay, that's not the most important part for the sponsorship thing, but God, those sentences are garbage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, But the Hyatt Hotel, which has the most advanced facilities and best service standards, will not give up this status to anyone else. It's not only the hotel's managers and the staff who think so. Even the hotel's customers are amazed by Hyatt's high-quality service and management. (laughs) It's incredible. (laughs) And, like, partly this is all set up to portray Kaneth as, like, one of the most narcissistic aristocrats in existence but also the way he sets it up the word choices he uses are very funny it sounds it like sounds he, like ad read yeah it a hundred percent does it sounds like gen urabuchi is like is d- doing a podcast ad read <laughs> soon kaneth will be talking about the subtle feeling of meundies oh god <laughs> Uh, it's 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 the only underwear good enough for a prodigy, the uh, caliber of Kaneth Elmoloy. Jesus Christ. Uh, anyway, uh, so Gen paints a picture of Kaneth's personality, which is to put it bluntly, bluntly, old money dickhead. Elmoloy was born in, into aristocracy, and he cannot stand being a, in a hotel with no traces of historical background or cultural heritage. He questions Lancer's loyalty to his cause for letting Saber go and blames Waver's inability to control Alexander for the chaotic way the battle ended. Lancer apologizes several times before a new character, Sola Ui Nuada Rei Sophia Ri, interjects to defend him. This woman is El Molloy's fiancée, the other half of what is implied to be an arranged marriage to produce powerful magi. Sola turns the tables on El Molloy, arguing it is more tactically sound to leave a critically wounded saber alone, so there would be more servants around to defeat the mysterious berserker. Additionally, if El Molloy had wanted to defeat Saber then and there, why did he stay hidden on the sidelines instead of attacking Irisville? This continues for a bit until Lancer asks her to stop humiliating his master. She immediately changes tone and apologizes to Lancer. Suddenly, they're interrupted by a fire alarm. Elmoloy suspects an ambush and sends Lancer out to intercept the attackers. That's not Kuritsugu's plan, though. Instead, after assuring that the rest of the building has evacuated, he detonates small, precisely placed explosives to cause a contained collapse. Mai's retreat from the scene is interrupted by Kyrie. Kyrie wounds her with his black keys, but she manages to use a smoke bomb bomb to escape. I'm going to touch on this a little bit later, but uh, this is another part of the story where Kuritsugu just knows um, how to place explosives in order to do a controlled detonation. (laughs) Yeah. Because Kuritsugu, and as we will later find out, Kyrie are just experts at anything that Genorubuchi needs them to be at the time uh, because mm-hmm. these are the two two coolest motherfuckers on the planet. <laughs> yep, pretty much. <laughs> um, yeah, the the scene with um, 
Sola and Kanith. So I know who Diarmat is uh, in mythology, and the moment she immediately acquiesced to what Diarmat said, I was like, "Oh no, we're <laughs> yeah. really doing this. We're they really sure doing." Uh, like I just had this moment of, "Oh, okay, this woman's cool." Like you know, immediately telling Kanith now, maybe she'll be an interesting villain. No, no, that's not what's going to happen, and I'm going to be annoyed about it the entire time. Yeah. And also, like, this goes back to what we were kind of complaining about during the last episode. If this is how he was going to take that relationship, it makes even less sense that he did not just make this Lancelot. Yeah. (laughs) God, imagine if it was Lancelot, though. That would be so tight. Lancelot coming in and actually just accidentally stealing another man's wife. Yes. God, yeah. how cool would that be? Exactly. It it also makes like these these upcoming scenes where like Diarmud is is like teaming up with um Saber despite his master's uh desires and like getting away with it through technicalities because they both want to like have an honorable battle. Like, it's, with the armament, it's fine. Um, but there is not near, there's not really any emotional weight behind it. Yeah. It would be so much cooler if Lancelot wasn't just a crazy person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see here where I leave off. Oh, right. Uh, a little later, Kyrie, Risei, and Tokiomi meet on a call to discuss Caster. Assassin has learned several valuable things, including Caster's nickname, Bluebeard, and that they've been responsible for the recent serial killings. Tokiomi and Risei both agree that letting these two run wild would be detrimental both to the Grail War and to the Magic Association's desire to keep magic hidden from the public. Caster and his master are drawing far too much attention and acting too recklessly. They agree to temporarily change the rules of the war and set a hunt for Caster. It is important to note, and I do have to give Gen some credit here, is that he does make sure like, to characterize this meeting as Tokyo and Tokiomi and Risei being concerned about keeping up the masquerade, to put it in World of, World of Darkness terms. They don't really care that much about the murders. <laughs> They yeah. they just don't want it to get out of control and become a mess that they're that'll get too much to deal with. Yeah, uh, they talk a big game about keeping up the masquerade, but like it doesn't really seem like anyone actually is putting any effort into doing that. Like <laughs> we hear uh, in the Rin chapter, we hear, don't we, about uh, how it's already out there's already like acknowledgement of a bunch of murder happening and a serial killer like i don't know they talk about keeping up the masquerade and then we just don't really see any of it and it's a lot of yeah i'm saying this is happening and then not seeing anything yeah which like to gen's defense and i i'm not gonna do this often but i feel like i i need to be fair here um (laughs) i don't i'm a hater I, I think I think that does make sense because both Tokiomi and Risei are compromised here. Like sure. Risei is deliberately colluding with another master to try and win him the war. 
So neither of them are really incentivized to go out of their way, which is why they're trying to manipulate the other masters into doing it for them. Sure. So like they will, they say this because that is like what they're supposed to say. Um, and it's, it's sort of the excuse they give themselves, but they don't, but you know, as, as we find from their actions, they don't really care that much or they'd be putting more effort into doing it doing something about it themselves or resay like would be calling you know would be trying to get assistance from the church but he can't do that because then they might investigate resay um so i i i don't think i don't think that is necessarily a problem with this scenario um i i think that's just again more more characterization of Tokyo Tokiomi and Rise just being huge hypocrites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's an entirely fair reaction. I'm just a hater, and this book has done nothing to in, <laughs> engender me giving it the benefit of the doubt. It has burnt through that already. That's fair. Um, I also, I also do, do just want to find. Um, other ways of interpreting things when I can, um, just because yeah. I think it's more fun that way. Oh, for um, sure. If if we, because I also again, I don't like Gen Rushi, but um, you don't say. But I also think it's it's more interesting if I if I try to find ways, like if if I try to like get in like get into the meat of this story and think like okay, you know, mm-hmm. in, in what ways could this make sense? Like, um, sure. I want to try to have a more, a little more balanced discussion. <laughs> I, I think that's fair. Uh, and like, outside of just being a hater, like, I think that that explanation makes sense. That is just a lot of legwork that is not necessarily provided by the text in any real way. So it's one of those things where it can be like, yeah, that, that makes sense. I just am not led to that conclusion really by the text in any real way outside of my own assumptions. Yeah, and like, to put my hater hat back on, <laughs> I do think that is a fundamental problem with yeah. a lot of this text. It's is that, then we touched on this again, you know, when we were talking about the first light novel, is that there is a lot of characterization that gets just skipped past, um... In favor of bad it, fight scenes. Yeah, in favor of fight scenes, in favor of exposition, in favor of again just wanting to get to the getting to the next scene, basically. Um, there are there aren't a whole lot of characters who just get to like sit there and be characters at each other. Yeah, that's like the one reason I do kind of like the uh, drink scene at the end because it's characters charactering at each other. Yeah, yeah, that is that is like one of the rare sequences where where we get to have that like outside of you know the the waiver and um, the waiver and rider scenes and shockingly some of Lancer's scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's there's actually quite a few scenes that Lancer gets between both Kaneth and Sola and like Sola and Kaneth get where. There is some exposition happening, but it's also a lot of them just, like, conflicting with each other. Yeah. Um, which I was not expecting to see, given how 
um, given how like just very basic Canis characterization was in the previous light novel. Uh, as, as sort of mid as I find Lancer's whole story arc so far, like I, I do kind of like that he is actually getting getting some getting those types of scenes. Uh, yeah. Where the hell was I? All oh, right. Uh, Kyrie return. <laughs> Here is actually a, a, another scene I did kind of like. Uh, Kyrie returns to Tokiomi's house and is surprised to find Archer wearing modern clothing and sitting on a bench in the middle of the room, ignoring everyone else. Archer, knowing what Kyrie has been up to, remarks that he must not be the only one who's bored. Tokiomi is supplying Archer with prana, so he'll be courteous to him as a proper servant should, but Archer finds his personality and desires to be dull. Archer has no interest in places he cannot control, so he doesn't care about the route that many magi are desperate to locate. Archer asks Kyrie what he wants from the Grail, but Kyrie claims he does not have a special wish. A special wish. Um, Archer suggests that instead of seeking the Grail for an ideal or desire, perhaps it's for pleasure. Kyrie rebukes him for wanting a disciple of God to commit sinful, sinful acts, but Archer reposts, asking why Kyrie assumed pleasure had to be sinful. Kyrie does not answer the question, instead claiming that he does not have pleasures and thus cannot seek them. Archer laughs and makes the argument that Kyrie is simply not aware of his own self. He then explains that he is interested in the behaviors of human beings and assigns Kyrie a task he believes will help both of them. Kyrie is to discover the reasons the other masters have for seeking the grail and report his findings to Archer. Yeah, uh, uh, this scene is like fine. It's just characters talking, which, like, cool. It's better than characters fighting and nothing happening. Yeah, it it has shades of, like, the the shit that Kyrie would go on to do, uh, like, Toshiro. Yeah. And it's like, I kind of I kinda do like that Gen is setting up here how Archer ends up in- influencing Kyrie and kind of changing his character. Um, yeah. Um, the one, the thing that is different about those scenes with Kyrie is like, there is stuff that is physically happening with those characters. That isn't just them talking, yeah. um, which adds to those scenes, uh, especially in uh, fate stay night. And, like, th- this is Gen doing the thing Gen loves to do, which is use characters as a uh, mouthpiece for I- for high and lofty ideals, and it makes every character sound kind of identical. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the... Uh, it, it's kind of like the Tomino problem. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Though I think Tomino is, in general, like has more interesting things to say about ideology, but I do have the same problem with a lot of Tomino's characters in that they don't feel like human beings. Um, yeah, it's not even just that they don't feel like human beings for me. It's that they all sound and feel identical when they start talking like this for again. Yeah. Like, we'll get to the scene near the end, and like... Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> I, I, they're saying different things, but they might as well be talking in the same voice. Except for Saber. <laughs> but yeah. We will talk about how Gen treats Saber. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we next get a brief interlude showing how Kaneth escapes the hotel's destruction by protecting himself with a strange silver sphere. That's really all you need to know. We'll get back to it later. Um, back at Waver's house, uh, Ryder signs for a package he ordered and excitedly opens it. Ryder immediately puts on an XL-sized t-shirt that has the logo of a video game, The Admiral's Great Tactics, with an image of the world map behind it, and this poses with it for Waver to see. <laughs> He's so excited to have a t-shirt. <laughs> he, saw, he saw Saber wearing a suit and was like, I need to get myself some modern clothing. <laughs> Um, Ryder is quite happy with his uh, new clothing and likes the idea of having the whole world on his chest. This fucking rules. I, I love yeah. Ryder because he's just the dumbest motherfucker alive. <laughs> he's so good. Um, the, the Ryder and Waver scenes are honestly like, uh, we say it constantly, but they are the most fun that this yeah. book has. It's great. I like, love when he gets to talk and just be the stupidest motherfucker alive. Yeah, like, e- even the scenes where, like, Caster shows up and shit gets, like, um, like, overly dark. Uh, like, they're still really good scenes because um, Waver and Ryder are just really fully realized characters. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, they don't, like, do anything a lot of the time, but they are, like, actual characters <laughs> at a bare minimum. Yeah, they'll, they'll get a little bit to do later on, but yeah, they, they've kind of just, like, sort of hung around and, like... <laughs> they, they do one thing in this scene, and yeah. in this uh, book, and that's Waver figures out one thing, and Alexander goes, ooh, neat. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's because they're not Kyrie or Kuritsugu, so they don't they don't get to accomplish things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, Ryder tries to head out uh, to show his new fashion to the public, but Waiter but Waver has to stop him and reminds him that he needs to wear pants to do that. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe fucking Ryder is Donald ducking it. He, yeah. <laughs> I say that, but I can absolutely believe Ryder is uh, Donald ducking it. Uh, However, Waver refuses to buy him pants until Ryder shows some results for all his boasts. He makes a bargain with Ryder to buy him pants or anything else he wants if Ryder kills a servant. The discussion is interrupted by a signal flare coming from the church informing all masters that the supervisor needs to speak with them. The five masters, who are all actual magi, all send familiars to the church instead of going there themselves. Rise announces that defeating Castor is the new number one priority, and to ensure Castor is killed, he will be offering an incentive. He reveals the multitude of command seals taken from masters who lost their servants during previous Grail Wars and promises to transfer them to anyone at his discretion, with the implication being anyone who helps defeat Castor will be rewarded. This ends Act 6. Uh, Kiritsugu, Iris Veal, sorry, that ends Act 5, now to Act 6. Um, mm-hmm. 
Kiritsugu, Iris Veal, Saber, and Maya are all back in Einsburn Castle discussing strategy. Kiritsugu feels it's more prudent to ignore Castor and allow him to lure the other servants into the forest boundary field, where he and Saber will be at an advantage. Saber objects, arguing the longer Castor is allowed to live, the more innocent lives will be lost. Kiritsugu completely ignores her and instead addresses Iris Veal, standing firm that they should hold position in the castle until Castor is lured in. Iris Veal is concerned that they'll need to defeat Lancer to cure Saber of her curse if she's to properly fight Castor. But Kiritsugu clarifies that she won't be fighting Castor. She'll be baiting him and fleeing, drawing other masters in and uh, uh, drawing other masters in to secretly hunt their other enemies. Saber is outraged by this, and even Iris Veal is shocked to see him revert to his more brutal self from nine years ago. But Kiritsugu doesn't seem to care. He soon ends the discussion and heads to the balcony. Iris Veal follows him and discovers that he's crying. He asks her if she'd follow him if he decided to throw everything away and flee from the Grail War. He'd retrieve Ilya and kill everyone who stood in his way. Iris Veal calls him a liar. He'd never forgive himself for abandoning his dream of using the Grail to attain his deepest wish. It would be impossible for him to actually go through with fleeing the war. Yeah. I, I almost like this scene. But something about it just sits in my throat the wrong way. I think it's partly due to how to the consistent way that Saber is treated in these these two novels, which is to be patronized to and not really get to accomplish much. Yeah. Um, because it ends up like there's sort of like this weird conflict going on in the writing itself, where Kuritsugu seems to be very clearly portrayed as being incredibly cruel and unfair to Saber. Yeah, um, constantly. But on the other hand, Saber, Saber's beliefs are never really validated. Mm-hmm. I, it, it, she is never given, like, justification or a, ability to actively defend her position beyond, um, I, I don't know, just kind of being dunked on or so that other people can cut her or can sweep her feet out from underneath her and invalidate whatever position she's holding. Yeah, like later in this same act, um Kiritsugu is about to uh win and Saber's actions like cause him to fail. Um and there is an argument and the and to be made, and the the novel also makes this argument that if Kuritsku had simply not treated Saber with such cruelty, that probably would not have happened. Um, but also, like again, it comes into conflict with the fact that Kuritsugu is allowed to accomplish things, um, is allowed to make things happen. Whereas Saber is constantly like, if not failing, um, mostly just surviving. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, it's it, in it's just tiring. Yeah, like out of context with the rest of the book, I think this is like a really good scene to characterize both Kurutsugu and Saber. Um, and I like how Saber is written here as like barely containing her rage and and dissatisfaction with the person who has summoned her and Iris Veal trying desperately to try and get two people she respects deeply to get along just for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the context of the rest of like how these two characters, Kiritsugu and Saber, are treated specifically, um, it comes off as feeling dishonest. Yeah. Uh, however, there, the heart-to-heart between Iris Veal and Kiritsugu is interrupted by the alarms of the boundary field going off. Castor has arrived. Back in the meeting room, Iris Veal, Iris Veal uses a crystal ball to observe Castor's actions. He's using children as hostages, prompting Saber to again demand that she be allowed to face him immediately. Even after he kills one of the children, Kuritsugu still hesitates. But Iris Veal has seen enough. She orders Saber to defeat Castor for her, and Saber is all too willing to oblige. Saber uses her wind powers to rush to her foe as quickly as she can, but it's still too late. By the time she arrives, all the children are dead. As the battle begins, Castor uses the corpses he's just made to summon more tentacle monsters. They die quickly to Saber's blade, but Castor's noble phantasm, Prelati's spellbook, the text of the spiraled sunken citadel, gives him access to an extremely large pool of prana, allowing him to continuously summon more monsters faster than Saber can defeat them. Saber soon realizes this is a battle of attrition that she's slowly losing. And to make matters worse, Iris Veal senses a new enemy in the forest, confirming Kuritsugu's fears that someone is going to try to take Saber's master out while she's occupied with Castor. This turns out to be somewhat good for Saber, though, since it's Kanith and Lancer who have arrived. Kanith may have murder on his mind, but Lancer was only commanded to defeat Castor. He was never told he couldn't team up with her to do it. Besides, they still have a nightly duel to finish. Meanwhile, Kanith is making his way through the castle, defending himself from traps using his special magic technique, Volumen Hydra... Oh god. Hydrargerum Moon Spirit Cerebrospinal Fluid. God, that one was tough. Uh, to put it simply, he has an amount of mercury that he can reshape at will, allowing him to both attack and defend with it at a moment's notice. This is how he survived the hotel collapse. Kanith is pretty insulted. Uh, Kanith is pretty insulted that he's being attacked by mundane military equipment. Kuritsugu is on the second floor when he notices a tiny drop of mercury ooze through a nearby hole. Soon after, a circle is cleanly cut through the floor, and Kanith uses a mercury tentacle to lift himself up to confront Kuritsugu directly. Apparently, Kanith can also use his power to remotely scout. Kuritsugu is able to dodge and flee from Kanith's first attack by using his power, time manipulation, to create a localized time bubble where he can react with superhuman speeds. 
The downside is that because the world wants to resolve paradoxes and inconsistencies, his body is forced to resync to the proper flow of time, causing intense physical physical strain. Thankfully, Kuritsugu has the soul of a video of a, of a fighting game player. He trains Kamus reaction by firing at him with a normal gun, which the Magus easily defends against with his Mercury. After doing this a few times, he's ready to spring his, fi- he's ready to spring his final trap. Uh, do you have anything to talk about before we move on to Act 7? Yeah, I think it's worth touching on here. Um, my frustration with uh, Kiritsugu's magic which is, um, he's a one-trick pony in the same way that, uh, Shiro is. Yeah. Um, but the distinction is there's, like, a thematic underpinning to Shiro's both incapability and also in the sole thing he is able to do. Um, like, we hit on this a whole bunch when we were talking about Fate Stay Night, about how, uh, Shiro as a person who is only able to fix inanimate objects and who is only able to produce swords uh, and his uh, uh, greatest reproduction being the reproduction of Avalon, a thing that isn't even a thing of violence to begin with. Yeah, um, and also right, Ro-Ias. And Ro-Ias being the greatest thing he could ever reproduce and how that is actively damaging to his body far more than any sword was. Um, like... There is a whole lot happening thematically there with throughout the whole text with uh, Shiro's ability, and it evolves as the text progresses. And, like, at least so far, I'm not seeing anything similar from Kiritsugu. It just sort of feels like this is a cool thing. Yeah, like, there's not really any sort of time-theming to Kaneth, either either a feeling like unstuck in time or wanting to turn it back or, or anything like that. It, it, if anything, Saber is the... Yeah. L- like, it, it, for Kuritsugu, like, if... Like, the closest we get for Kuritsugu is his whole desperate need, I need to be the edgier me from nine years ago. I, I can't love my family. Like, I, that's the closest it gets. And even that is like... It's so disconnected from his ability that it's just sort of like, okay, what's the thematic underpinning here? Yeah. Is this a, just a cool thing he can do? Because it feels like just a cool thing he can do. Yeah, there's... It's 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 especially interesting, like, compared to Kaneth, um, who both has, a, like, a really conceptually cool ability. Um, and also, I feel like it does suit his character a lot better. Um, yeah. Because, like, when you think of a just sphere of liquid mercury, um, it is... Like, the images you get in your mind are of, like, perfection. But not perfection of a necessary, necessarily, like, aesthetic-pleasing variety, but perfection of a sterile variety. Um, it is featureless. It is completely smooth. It's just an orb and like Kaneth can reshape that to do his bidding. He can, he can turn it into a basically anything he wants, but the end, at the end of the day, it's still just mercury. It has no, it has no life to it. It, it kills things that touches it because it's mercury. Mm -hmm. Kaneth is similar. Like 
he is a prodigy. He considers himself, and a lot of mage society considers himself to be like an example of the perfect ideal that mages strive to be. He has a perfect mind. Um, but he is a featureless human being. Um, and his very presence is poison to everybody, yeah. Yeah. So seeing these two characters like interact, like Kaneth has such a good power. And <laughs> Kiritsugu, beyond like, ooh, time manipulation, neat, is just it's just so basic. But also, like I could even forgive that if this fight was particularly cool. But it's not. Kaneth is here to job. Like, that that's yeah. the thing that we haven't hit on. This fight is not, like, in doubt or, like, a struggle for uh, 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 Kiritsugu at all. Kaneth is literally here to job. That's yeah. the only thing he's here for. I, I should rewatch this particular scene um, that UFO Table did in the anime because my memory, like, tells me that... Um, it was more tense the way they directed it, but I could be wrong. Again, it's been years since I watched Fate Zero, so I may be just remembering it through rose-tinted glasses. But I don't remember it being this far gone of a conclusion that, like, Kiritsugu was not in much trouble. It's also just kind of disappointing to have one of the Seven Masters, I guess eight if we're counting Sola, job this hard. Um, yeah. Like, again, compared to Fate Stay Night, I don't think there's anybody who jobbed. Aside from Shinji, and, like, that was the whole point. Well, and, like, Shinji <laughs> also, like, didn't really job. Yeah, that's like, true. Shinji like, was, like, a threat every time. Yeah, he did, yeah, I guess, like, he did make the blood fort. And, like, the the whole thing with Shinji is that, like, if 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 the main characters had actually treated him not necessarily as a powerful threat, but as someone who was willing to do awful things and be a threat, then they would have taken him out extremely easily. Yeah. Um, but nobody took him seriously. Nobody thought that he was um, like an actual risk or something they needed to be concerned about until it's nearly too late. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess even like even even Shinji like being a jobber the 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 idea is not just that he's a jobber but rather that he should have been if the if like Rin and Shiro had actually taken him seriously if they but, had been paying attention. But like even in terms of him clearly being weaker than everybody else, it is not like he is there to just get murdered by the protagonist. It is yeah. more he is in the same position as Shiro as a like frail and vulnerable part in the same way where it's like, yeah, the uh, the mage is the vulnerable portion of this and he and Shiro both are emblematic of that. Yeah. Yeah. And like the difference between him and Shiro is that Shinji is is willing to be an absolute bastard. Mm hmm. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, Act 7. Uh, at another spot in the castle, Maya prepares to defend Irisville from Kyrie, who has just arrived. Uh, here's, here's a scene that made me frustrated. Um, Iris, put it. 
Iris Veal, however, does not simply want to flee. She convinces Maya to allow her to help defeat him and keep him from interfering with Kiritsugu. Unfortunately for Maya, Urobuchi has decided that Kyrie is the second coolest dude alive, just, just after Kiritsugu, of course, uh, and he quickly dispatches her. Things go a little better for Iris Veal. Under the assumption that, uh, that a mage of the Einsburn family, who possesses magic designed to forge, create, and use matter, Kyrie believes Iris Veal does not have magic capable of mounting an attack. However, she has cleverly come up with a technique to do exactly that. By using her magic to form threads into complex shapes, she's able to craft a giant eagle that she can control like a puppet. Uh, after she attacks Kyrie with it for a bit, Kyrie goes in to punch it as it approaches him, but Iris Veal counters by unspooling the threads and capturing his limbs. Doing this, she's able to temporarily disable Kyrie and bind him to a nearby tree. Maya tries to go for her gun to shoot Kyrie in his now exposed head. Unfortunately for them, Kyrie, again, second coolest man alive, is also a master of Chinese kung fu, which means he can strike with the back of his hands with full force, even with very little space to move and gather momentum. He breaks the tree with merely three strikes, freeing himself and bringing Iris Veal to the ground alongside Maya. This is especially egregious to me because Maya doesn't even get to put up a threat to Kuritsugu, even though Gen yeah. went out of his way in the first light novel to tell us that Maya had been trained for like 10 years since she was a child by Kuritsugu to be like the second most ultimate assassin ever. And she Maya just fucking bites it. it. And then jobs to Kiritsugu. Like, well, I, well, jobs to Kirie twice, I should say. Like, yeah, she doesn't get true. to fight Kaneth. Like, it's Kirie both times. And Kirie, like, sneaks up on her the first time and, like, uh, almost, like, immediately forces her to retreat because he throws a sword at her. Uh, and then the second time, even though Maya has a pretty good idea of Kirie's deal, he just pulls out Chinese Kung he, he That's actually before he pulls out the Chinese Kung Fu. He just defeats her again. Yeah. And then when Iris Veal, like, gets to do something, Urubich is like, ah. But actually, Kyrie also knows this special Kung Fu technique that means that what Iris Veal did doesn't actually matter. <laughs> Speaking of, I, I do think it's worth highlighting, like... It, Iris's ability is like what we were talking about. Like, yeah, it, it's that, cool. I, it well, not only is it like, cool, it is also uh, a conjuration of a, a simulacrum, simulacrum of life, like she is, and but it's also reflective of her ability as a homunculus and to still have had a child. Yeah, uh, but it is still ultimately a simulacrum that is uh, binding um, and threatening in that way, and like. That, that is interesting. There's a lot you can do thematically with that and the position she is in, and it doesn't. Yeah, and ultimately, the her creations don't have lives of their own. They're, they are puppets for uh -huh. the thing that created them. Uh-huh. Um, again, interesting how, like, all these people, except for Kyrie and Kiritsugu, have, like, 
techniques that speak to their character. And I guess Maya as well, because she's basically just characterized as like like a gender-bent clone of, of <laughs> like, Kyrie, who also kind of sort of wants to, to fuck, fuck him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like, it's basically like the ultimate wish fulfillment OC character. Um, yeah. <laughs> but also, unlike a Mary Sue, she doesn't actually get to accomplish anything. <laughs> uh. Anyway, uh, returning to the battle with Caster, Saber comes up with a daring plan to try and break through the multitude of monsters. She uses one of her techniques, Airstrike, to create a thin gap through the monster, which Lancer leaps through to attack. However, instead of targeting Caster, he uses Guy Derg on the spellbook instead, briefly terminating its prana supply. All the summoned monsters suddenly disintegrate. Although the disruption is temporary and Caster can resummon them, he won't be able to, to uh, accumulate enough of them to defend himself now that two servants are attacking him. He does manage to create a blinding mist, though, which he uses to distract both servants long enough to escape. Uh, again, Saber gets an advantage on Caster and he just gets away. Uh... Back at the battle with Kanith, the Magus has become increasingly irritated about the chase Kurisugu has led him on. Unbeknownst to him, Kurisugu is finally ready to deal the last blow. Kurisugu once again leads Kanith into a narrow hallway where retreat is not a viable way to defend against an attack. Kurisugu brings out his single-shot contender and fires it at Kanith. Like he did before, Kanith defends with his Mercury, which seals his fate. Kuritsugu had loaded the gun with one of his magic bullets, which acts very similarly to a noble phantasm. As a conceptual conceptual weapon, it's able to pierce through Kanith's magical defenses. And because the bullet contains dust from Kuritsugu's ribs and still preserves some of his soul, as soon as it pierces Kanith's body, it acts like a drop of water on an unprotected high-voltage power cable, shorting out and completely destroying Kanith's own magic circuits. No longer able to control his mystic code and fatally wounded, Kanith collapses on a puddle of his own mercury. Before Kuritsugu can finish him off, though, Lancer senses that his master is in mortal danger. Saber is appalled at her own master's underhanded tactics and urges Lancer to go save his lord. Lancer thanks her, telling her that he's in her debt. Saber simply reminds him that they swore to have a duel between knights. With the matter settled, Lancer quickly retreats to Kanith's side, blocking Kuritsugu. Kuritsugu immediately realizes that Saber let him get away and again regrets summoning such an incompatible servant who places more trust in Lancer than she does with her own master. Lancer tells Kuritsugu that, out of respect for Saber, he will simply leave with Kanith, and he should remember that his life was spared because of the, because of the King of Knights nobility. Uh, meanwhile, Kyrie is interrogating Irisville and Maya, trying to determine why they tried to defend Kuritsugu. He initially assumes they must have been ordered to do it, either by Kuritsugu himself or another party. However, after they make it clear that they intend to stop him, even at the cost of their own lives, he realizes they must be motivated by faith instead. Uh, 
here is a quote from Curie's own thoughts. Quote, Women are frequently selfish beings. Sacrificing themselves to save him is something that can only be done when those two women fully accept him, fully comprehend him. That was to say, is Emi Akiritsugu a being that could be comprehended by others? End quote. Only I can want to fuck him. This isn't fair. <laughs> uh, Kyrie refuses to believe that conclusion, but he has but he has other things to worry about. With Castor, Lancer, and Kaneth all gone, there's nothing stopping Saber from returning to defend Irisville. In order to buy himself time to escape, Kyrie fatally stabs Irisville, which forces Saber to tend to her wounds instead of chasing after him. To Saber's surprise, once she returns to Irisville's side, she finds her wounds have quickly healed. Irisville lies to Saber, claiming her healing magic works much better on her own body because she's a homunculus. However, the truth is that Kuritsugu sealed Avalon inside Irisville as a trump card to keep her safe. Thus ends Act 7. Yeah, I, I don't really have much more to say here other than, like, it. that's not true. Uh, it, it is frustrating that um, Kyrie's whole thing is basically being mad that the two women both want to fuck Kyrie. Yeah, and also just and being like that, completely obsessed with him. Yeah, and, like, that that is a reductive way of framing it, and it's unfair to the novel, but, like, that's kind of what's happening, and it's just, it's tiring, man. I, I want Kyrie to want things outside of our protagonist who is so good that he, and, and hot, like, I just, it's tiring. Yeah, like, this this whole section would be significantly better if, like, Gen had bothered to give us reasons why... Or I should say, to give us convincing reasons why Kyrie is so obsessed with Kuritsugu. But, like, the only thing we have to go on is the fact that Kyrie read Kuritsugu's, like, file that told him all the spy shit Kuritsugu has been up to. And he just intuited Kuritsugu's whole personality, and now he's obsessed with that. Which, like, if Gen was doing a thing where... It turns out Kyrie's impression of Kuritsugu was completely off base. And Kyrie was like obsessed with this person that almost acted like a ideal figure for him or like a figure that he felt he could relate to um, and thus projected his own like desires or lack thereof and like personal foibles onto and then it turned out Kuritsugu was not like that that he was like fucked up in completely different ways um that would be a lot more interesting um cause it would like say really interesting things about Kyrie and what Kyrie wants out of this whole obsession but that's not really like, it, it's a little bit, um, because Kyrie is like, oh, cause can Emiya be understood by others? But that's not really saying anything. Yeah, it, like, 
again, it's this thing where, like, I could see that argument being made, but I'm doing all of the legwork for the book yeah. at that point. Yeah. And, like, I, I would I would want to see more from uh, Kirie and from uh, Kiritsugu that shows that he is, like, fundamentally misunderstanding things. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just, it's frustrating. This whole book is fucking frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, because you see so many, like, kernels of ideas um that are are sometimes even like partially followed up on or like get close to like doing interesting things but then just don't um because the next fight scene has to happen um or just because like i don't know i guess urubuchi gets bored and doesn't want to like do the legwork of writing the actual character scenes to set the stuff up um but they they don't sprout into anything interesting um they they just get briefly mentioned uh and like exposited to us and we're supposed to believe that that counts (laughs) yeah there's just no teeth here All right, Act 8. As the final act of this novel begins, we get a brief summary of Lancer's backstory. Uh, God, I am going to fuck up these Irish names so badly. Uh, Probably, yeah. Grain, the daughter of the High King of Ireland, is about to be married to Fionn Mac Cumhail, a great warrior who controls the healing water. Among the great knights attending the celebration and swearing fealty to Fionn is Diarmuid. However, during the banquet, uh, 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 Grainé uh, uh, confesses... I don't know how to handle that name. Granny. Uh, Granny. <laughs> oh, God. That's definitely wrong, but I'll take it. Uh, confesses her love for Diarmuid and entreats him to accept Aegeus to annul the marriage and take her away to the ends of the earth. Kaneth wakes up from his dreams, where he experienced Diarmid's past firsthand. He finds himself lying on a bed inside an abandoned factory he moved to after the hotel collapsed. He discovers only his torso is tied down by a belt, but he can feel no sensation from his arms and legs, and he cannot move them. Solo reveals that his magic circuit went berserk, nearly destroying his internal organs and damaging muscles and nerves through his whole body. She managed to restore his organs, but his nerves are beyond repair. Additionally, his magic circuit was completely destroyed, and he'll never be able to use magecraft again. Ha uh, suck it. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, Sola asks him to allow her to take his command spells and, becomes Lan- and become Lancer's master, so she can bring him victory. However, partly due to obstinance and partly due to a growing sense of unease, Kaneth refuses. He asks Sola if she thinks Lancer would switch masters so easily. She believes he would accept it, since he responded to the invitation of the Holy Grail and will put up with the substitution in order to seek the Grail. But Kaneth isn't so certain. When Lancer was first summoned, he asked him what his wish was. Lancer replied that he did not need the Grail to fulfill his wish. His only desire was to fulfill his honor as a knight by devoting his loyalty to his master. He, replete, he repeatedly refused the Holy Grail, which Kenneth views, viewed with increased suspicion, 
believing Lancer was simply hiding his true intentions. However, if Sola is correct and he would willingly switch masters, then it means he does seek the Grail and cannot be trusted. Though Kaneth cannot use Magecraft, he can still use command spells, so he again refuses to hand over Lancer to Sola. Sola's attitude suddenly changes, and she twists off the pinky finger on his right hand. Coldly, Sola explains that she can only use her healing techniques to extract his command spells if he consents to it. If he doesn't, then she will be forced to cut off his right arm. Later that night, Sola calls Lancer to meet with him. Uh, sorry, Sola call- yeah. Later that night, Sola calls Lancer to meet with her. Lancer asks about Kanus' well-being, and Sola tells him his legs are shot, but his arms are recovering slowly. Lancer regrets his failure to protect Kanath, but Sola argues that Kanath reaped what he sowed. His, de- his desire to win the, war- win the war was so great that it blinded him. She argues he is not fit to be Lancer's master. Lancer refuses, explaining that if Kanath gave up the fight for the Grail, he will do the same. Sola counters that if he feels responsible for Kanath's current fate, then he should win the war and wish to heal him. Lancer asks if she will swear to seek the Grail only for Kanath and deny any ulterior motives. Sola swears it. What she does not reveal is that she does not is that she does not feel any affection for the man she was arranged to be married to and has fallen in love with Lancer. Lancer agrees to help Sola, though he does suspect that history may be repeating itself. However, in the hope that his wish will be fulfilled, he will obey Sola for now. So yeah, they're the, he's just doing the story again. Yeah, it. I... The weird thing about this section to me was how it almost seemed like it portrayed Kane sympathetically here. I yeah. Not necessarily like Kanus actions, but more like, oh damn, it's pretty rough that this dude lost like everything that he cared about. Now he lost his wife. It's like she fucking hates the guy, and like I don't blame her. <laughs> um, and it's it's being it's again being treated as this tragedy that like Lancer is quote unquote betraying. Uh, betraying Kaneth and and Sola is also quote unquote betraying him. Um when honestly I just want them both to have a good life together. <laughs> My thing is this really like drove home for me. Does any woman in this book have any desire that is not fixated on a man? Yeah, like basically saber and that's because and saber's desire is frustrated at every turn in like a a deeply dissatisfying way and also like nasu already came up with saber's desire that was not created by gen he's just going off of like what was already there yeah um but yeah no it's like maya iris veal sola um, all of their desires are centered around a man. Mm-hmm. It's just frustrating. 
I, like, I know I say that all the time, but it is. Also, one th- one thing I noticed that, like, the, the thing, the one of the uh, very important things, at least I think is very important, about the whole tale of, like, um, of Diarmuid, uh, that Gen does not include in his brief summary of, like, what caused this tragedy is that, uh, the dude that Grain was supposed to me- to marry, Fionn, was, like, old enough to be her grandfather. Yeah. Like, of course she would not want to marry him. Mm-hmm. Who would? Seems pretty reasonable. <laughs> yeah, like... Um... Yeah, it's just interesting to me that that, that is not mentioned, especially... Especially given the implication here that, like, it feels like we are intended to read Sola's motives here as, like, selfish and villainous. Yeah, like, it's supposed to read like she's kind of gone sicko mode. Yeah. um, But, like, it's the most boring form of sicko mode where it's just misogyny. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, yeah, no, Kaneth sucks. Why why would she want to marry him? Like, even even as a Magus, uh, why would she want to Kaneth, marry Kaneth? Because even in the world of mages, Kaneth seems like a particularly assholish individual. Yeah, he's kind of a prick. Yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, Waver wakes up, having fallen asleep at his desk. He had sent Ryder off on an investigation task while he stayed behind to work out a strategy to deal with Castor. He's called downstairs by the married couple he brainwashed and discovers that Alexander has already come back and has been having a great time shooting the breeze with them for a while now. For their part, the couple enjoy Alexander's presence and don't even think to question his made-up backstory of being Waver's friend from London. Uh, Waver manages to get Ryder back up to his room and asks him what he thinks he's doing. Ryder argues that if he needs to, like, come come in a, in a physical form anyway, it'll be easier for him to move about the house and then sneak in if Waver's parent, quote-unquote parents already know, ha- know who he is and does not question his presence. <laughs> Which, you know what? Good point, Ryder. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Waver does not have a counter-argument, so he simply takes the bag that Alexander brought back to him and takes out a set of vials labeled alphabetically that are filled with fluid. Um, He then proceeds to do chemistry while Alexander observes him. Waver asks Ryder to to take samples from specific spots in the river that runs through Fuyuki. By then using magic chemistry to measure each sample for prana density, he hopes to determine a more precise search area they can use to find Kasser's workshop. It works exactly as planned. As he tests samples taken from water further upriver, the presence of prana becomes stronger, until it eventually vanishes entirely. He then reviews the section of, of the map corresponding to the last sample that tested positive and finds what appears to be a kind of drainage trench or irrigation channel. He decides that's where they should start their search. Ryder is extremely impressed by his, by his ingenuity, but Waver's hang-ups cause him to assume Ryder is mocking him with praise. This is not something great magi do, Waver says, 
This method is the worst among the worst. What are you talking about, Ryder says. If you achieve good results using a poor method, isn't that a much greater achievement than starting from better methods? You should be proud of yourself. As a servant, I am, all, I am proud as well. Concerned about the danger inherent to storming a mage's workshop, Waver is hesitant to attack immediately, but Ryder is feeling more bold. He argues that an enemy's camp can change frequently, and failing to strike when that while they know his current location could cause the opportunity to slip away. Plus, Ryder wishes to repay him for finally showing some achievement by bringing back the head of the enemy. Bolstered by Ryder's confidence and praise, Waver agrees to attack quickly. So again, yeah, yeah I, you're correct. He only does one thing, but it's great. <laughs> this scene kind of rules. Like, it, we have Waver's... Like, th there is a characterization here of Waver, like, being capable, but, like, only in ways that he is deeply ashamed of and ways other people would uh, think is cool. And we have a Ryder providing a counterpoint to that and pointing out, like, you are still achieving a thing that no one else has been able to do. Like, yeah. They beat Assassin there. Yeah, they 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 will, as I will see shortly. And like it's I like how this sort of ties into the way Nasu ex describes magic in Fate Stay Night, um th through the yeah. through the personality of Rin, where she tells Shiro like magic um it magic all magic does is accomplish things that human beings would be capable of with enough effort. And magic just skips that whole effort part. Um, mm -hmm. Here we have, like, Waver, who is ashamed of himself because he is doing the effort, whereas he he believes and is likely correct that, quote-unquote, better mages would just simply take the shortcut of doing all this with magic. Um, well, but I think, like, even in counterpoint to that, like, None of the better mages do this. Yeah. None of the better mages do the effort. None of them are able, or e even do the magic. Like, yeah. Assassin literally find it on foot, and they find it later. Like, yeah. His his like his mistaken assumption is is not just that like it is uh like it is it is a shameful thing to use those methods, but also he fails to like realize that. He is the only one who even thought to do that. Um, yeah. Whereas the other mages, because they are like used to like having an abundance of magic circuits and used to just relying on certain techniques that mean they don't have to work as hard, like they don't even consider. Um, the idea of like actually doing research to like actually narrow down caster's location. They, they instead like try to get other people to do it for them mm -hmm. uh, to like ride on each other's coattails. And because of that, nothing actually gets accomplished. Mm -hmm. um, even Karitsugu was like, well, we know that Caster is going to go after Saber because Saber is because like he's obsessed with her. So we'll just wait here and wait for him to come to us. We don't need to do anything proactive, which infuriates her. <laughs> um, like Waver is the only one who is actively doing anything. Right. Uh, and Ryder, because 
Ryder is who he is. He's Alexander the Great. He thinks that rules. <laughs> yeah, and he's right. It does rule. Uh-huh. Um, I also like that Waver initially misinterprets Ryder's praise um, because, like, Ryder is frequently a goofball uh, and often, like, does sort of, like, use sarcasm against him or, like, uh, or, like, pull his leg. So initially, he just assumes that Ryder is, is being a dick again. And Ryder has to correct him, like, no, I genuinely think this is cool. Yeah, it, like, Ryder is just the best part of this book, is the real thing. Yeah. Uh, a little while, while later, they discover a sewer tunnel in the area that leads to Kasra's lair. Waver's research is confirmed to be correct when they find the area infested with aquatic monsters, which Alexander easily pushes through using his chariot noble phantasm. They are the only defenses the two encounter, though, which Waver finds strange. Normally, a mage would protect their workshop a lot more thoroughly. At the end of the tunnel, they discover a wider area that must be the workshop, but Castor doesn't seem to be home. Becoming strangely frank and solemn, Alexander tries to warn Waver not to look at the workshop. Believing Ryder is just patronizing him again, Waver activates his night vision. He sees a floor covered with blood and finds the room is filled with humans that have been turned into a variety of furniture and other objects, some of whom still seem to be alive. Over overcome with disgust, Waver immediately throws up. Ryder steps down from the chariot to comfort him, comfort him, but Waver lashes out, complaining that Ryder is treating him like an idiot. In truth, Waver knows he has no reason to yell at Ryder. He simply feels humiliated to be acting this way in front of him. Ryder, however, does not scold him for his outburst. Quote, if there is someone who would rather not twitch an eyebrow even after being shown such a thing, I'll go and bash him. Rather, I praise your decision, boy. The plan of bringing Castor and his master down first is true indeed. Now I see every second such people exist is disgusting. End quote. Waver asks why he's standing there looking so unconcerned, to which Ryder replies, he has, he has to control his emotions. His master is currently in danger. Ryder quickly attacks something in the darkness that Waver cannot see. However, Waver soon hears a scream of agony and discovers that Ryder has killed an assassin. In fact, four assassins in total are here. Ryder concludes they have been deceived by the footage of assassin's death. The assassins had followed Ryder and Waver in, taking advantage of the pathway the chariot created in the hopes of taking out Waver and discovering the status of Castor's defenses. However, with their ambush unsuccessful and their secret now revealed, their plans have ended in complete failure. The assassins fall back, realizing they are in a bad environment to take on assassin if reinforcements arrive. Ryder quickly retreats out of the tunnel with Waver. Before they leave, though. Ryder turns his bulls loose on the workshop. Their flaming hooves burn up and demolish Castor's workshop, dealing a serious blow to him and pu putting his victims out of their misery. Uh, did you want to say anything about this section before I move on to Rin? No, I, I don't have anything really to say here. Yeah, it's, it's kind of straightforward. Just more good interactions with Ryder and Waver. Um, 
and we kind of get a, a rare instance of like a rider being very serious and solemn mm-hmm. and trying to be comforting. Uh, so yeah, uh, at, at this point, I actually stop writing a formal summary of events. Cause like, well, first of all, because like the, the Rin thing doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. It, it, it literally is a- a- capped by them being like, oh, okay, and now this doesn't matter. You could have cut this. Yeah, like the whole sequence is just Rin learns that her friend goes missing. Um, her, like her friend's name is one that never appears in Fate Stay Night. So I think we can all safely assume that she was one of Caster's victims. Um, yeah, she's super dead. Yeah, but Rin never really figures that out, at least not here. Instead, she goes out in the night to try and, and find leads, and she ends up meeting um, Karya, who, guess what? He's back in the narrative again, finally. Gen remembered that he exists. Um, and because he's, like, so fucked up by the worms, he looks like a monster and ends up causing Rin to faint. Uh, and then Aoi arrives looking for Rin, and, like, she has a conversation with Karya where she's like, damn, why'd you get all fucked up and go back to the Mato family? And Karya's like, well, I'm trying to protect Sakura. And then they have a depression off. Um, uh, so there is one thing I do yeah. think was interesting here with Aoi, which is that uh, this clearly is not what she wants. Like, yeah. Uh, she was clearly like, like it was said before in her previous scene, but like, uh, it seems like him coming to her rescue like this is not a thing she actually wants. It is entirely something he's conjured in his head. Like, this is not her desire. Yeah. And, like, it doesn't actually do anything useful. Like, no. this is, which is confirmed, like, it already, we already know from Faith Stay Night, and Gan already knows as well, but, like, Karya's role here is to be just the biggest dumbass on Earth. That's true. Um, And, like, that is... A narrative you could do, I guess. Yes. I don't know what the purpose is. Because, like... Because, yeah. like, again, we're... Kuritsugu is already there, right? Like, mm-hmm. we already have Kuritsugu for this type of storyline, where Kuritsugu has an ideal in his head that we know from Fate Stay Night is a self-destructive and foolish idea that does not accomplish anything actually good. Um, it just leads him down the path of like extremist utilitarianism, um, which is not a sustainable ideal, um, and leads to Carrier like sacrificing his own wife and basically never getting to see his daughter again, um, and killing a whole shitload of people anyway. Mm-hmm. He utterly fails. So why is Karya here to do the same thing, but on a much smaller scale? It feels like he's supposed to be a counterpoint to uh, uh, Kiritsugu, and they just have... He's barely in the books. Yeah. Yeah. I just Yeah, I just don't know. He just doesn't seem to serve much of a purpose outside of like 
being there so Berserker can be there. Because like there had yeah. to be a there had to be a master con- to control Berserker. Um, I honestly think it it would have been a lot funnier if like Berserker had that fight. He ended up being like a severe threat, and everyone was like, "Oh shit, we got to watch out for Berserker." But then Karia just couldn't handle the worms and just burned up. Just and fucking died. That was the end of Berserker. Yeah. Because, like, it, I feel like it would have emphasized a lot more how cruel and, um, and, like, how cruel the Mateau family is. And also how pointless it is to try and fight that by being the best mage possible. You can't fight that by becoming a Mateau. He like you can't. You took the entirely wrong path here. Um, I don't know. Like at this point, I'm just making up my own fate zero. But yeah, I mean, at this point, we're just writing fanfic. Yeah, but yeah, but at the same time, like I, honestly, even in the anime, I always wondered like, why is Karya here? What's because the they need a seventh master? Yeah. <laughs> Because <sighs> they need a seventh master and they need to be related to the Matos. Yeah. That's it. That's the that's the whole reason. Yeah. I mean, <sighs> if you want to keep the whole Sakura tragedy, and you also and I don't. Well, yeah, which like, there's a lot of as much as we love Sakura, there are a lot of issues with how Nasu built that. Um. Yep. Uh, but if 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 you were Gen Urobuchi, and you, if you were given the same task he was to like make a prequel to this, and you had to address like the whole Sakura situation because it takes place in that time frame, wouldn't it be kind of interesting if Aoi ended up secretly being the seventh master? That would be cool. Because like she did not actually want to to have Sakura go through that. And she wants to wish, wish on the grail to have her daughter back and is thus like fighting against her own husband um, secretly to do that. We, we could have a fixation on her actual desires and goal and give her an objective in the agency with which to act upon that objective. Because the whole point of the servants is that they are, uh, do not have any agencies to act upon, or any agency to act upon their own objectives. And uh, uh, Aoi is in a similar position. But finally being given that agency, she would be allowed to actually resist a thing that she had long since consigned herself to. That would put her in a very interesting uh, position and function as a counterpoint to both Tokiomi and uh, Kiritsugu and Iris. Yeah, like... Uh, you already have a pre-established character there who has to exist. Tokiomi's wife, the the mother of Sakura. Just make her the character that comes into conflict with Tokiomi. Just do that. Know, we already know Rin's mom isn't around. Yeah. And neither is Rin's dad. It would make complete sense for both of them to die in this war. Yeah. And for there is an inherent uh, tragedy there to Rin not knowing that her parents died fighting each other. Yeah, that's well. That would that seems like some shit well, uh, Urobuchi we, would love. Well, specifically, we do learn, and and it has to be that Kyrie kills 
Tokiomi because that is literally a thing that he reveals in Fate Stay Night. But Tokiomi could be res- could on accident or on purpose, you know. He's a mage on yeah, purpose. Yeah, you could you could just have it be on purpose because he's a mage who he sold values, his daughter to the Matos. Yeah, who values the root more than his wife. Just kill just kill his just kill his wife and not feel particularly bad about it. <laughs> um <sighs> But instead, we just have to get this random dude who was like Aoi's childhood sweetheart. Because God knows we can't just have a woman do a thing. Fuck no. <laughs> How dare you? Uh, That's m- wanting too much. The more I think about just the overall way the story is constructed, the more frustrating it is to me. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're right. I keep finding way better ways you can just interlock all these pieces. This is why I'm a hater constantly because the structure of itself, the structure itself does not engender any uh, support from me. Yeah. It would also make sense like for her to summon Berserker as well. Cause like she's not really portrayed. She might, I don't know. She might be a powerful Magus, but she's never really portrayed that way. She's just portrayed as being like his, oh. his wife, Tokiomi's wife. So like, also, I think it would be cool if uh, uh, Sakura's mom also got to go sicko mode. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah, if like th- like Berserker was her way of like sort of channeling her own rage that she's at her circumstances that she has been restraining this whole time. Yeah, weird, weird how that would um, how that would very much work structurally. Hmm. Anyways, yeah, we're at an hour and a half. Let's keep going. Yeah, time to talk about like sort of the real meaty scene uh, in in this book, and also the primary reason why I I stopped writing a proper summary like I usually do because I it would be impossible for me to like really do this without. It just is going through way too much effort because there is there's shit to talk about here, and I kind of just want to do it free form. So, at this next scene in Einsburn Forest, um, Ryder arrives, having already mentioned to Waver that after their whole like fucked up experience with Caster Caster's workshop, what he really wants now is a drink, and he decides to just get a bottle, get like a cask of sake. Don't ask how he got it. Who knows? Uh, And bring it over to Saber. Because he wants to sit down with her and have a contest to see who is the best king. Uh, Which is such a perfect rider idea. (laughs) So, yeah. Rider and Saber. and, And also Archer, who also shows up. Because Archer cannot resist... Um an opportunity to talk about how fucking cool of a king he is. Uh, I'll sit down. I do think that's kind of funny. Yeah, I'll sit down. And and also because, like, Gilgamesh wants to show off his wine collection, which also rules. That that fucking rules. They they show up and Gilgamesh is like, fuck this wine. This wine is trash. 
and it, uh, Saber is convinced he's about to bring out his weapons, and instead he just brings out a jewel-studded bottle of wine. Yeah, he uses the and game of Babylon to like, bring out wine because it's a because the because like his, his noble phantasm isn't creating every weapon he ever owned; it's creating every treasure he ever owned. And, and he's got the best wine collection. Yeah, wine is a treasure. <laughs> it's, it rules. It's it's so good. It's such a clever and brilliant twist on like Gilgamesh's whole power that mm-hmm. I desperately wish this imagination showed up in other parts of the novel because like clearly Gen has the capability of doing it. Um, like this scene kind of kind of proves it. Uh, but yeah, it's it's such a great use of Archer's whole situation. So, like, they sit down to have a discussion of, like, what it means to be a king and what me- what it means to, like, be the best king. Um, and Ryder initially, do- like, does a drinking competition, but um, they eventually get to discuss- discussing, like, kingship in a more philosophical sense. Um, and let me see if I can find... Well, actually... If you have something to say about this, go ahead and do that while I I, I try and find the quotes I wanted to pull here because I, I sure forgot to do that beforehand. Uh, yeah, and so the way they basically end up positioned is uh, the real meat of the discussion is between uh, Alexander and Artoria. Uh, Archer is just kind of here to be a bitch. Yeah, which fair. Um, which, uh, yeah, and it's fun because he's just here to be a huge bitch. Yeah. And I think it's fun that he gets to be a bitch. Um, this Archer is... This Gilgamesh is so much more fun than the he's Gilgamesh just, that showed up for, like, Fate's Day Night. <laughs> he's just a bitchy little gay man, and I love him for yeah. it. Yeah, and, like, part of that, I guess, is because he hasn't been ta- tainted by the by the corrupted grail yet. So, like, he's not in weird... He's not rapey? Yeah, he's not in weird rapey mode. Um, but also just, like, I mean, Nasu could have written him like this, but just more like... Uh, just more like fucked up about it and it still would have been more fun than what we got. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but yeah, so the meat of this discussion is between Archer and Artoria with uh, Artoria positioning her uh, role as a king as uh, basically to protect and shield and uh, uh, take care of all of the issues in people's lives. Uh, and uh, is an inherently self-sacrificing one. Like, uh, she fundamentally thinks her obligation as a king is to cease to be a person, Um, and the way it's framed is her desire is uh, both isolating, self-destructive, and also uh, denying the people of the kingdom of their agency. Like, at one point, uh, Arturia says uh, she wants to go back in time and change everything, um, and Alexander gets pissed as fuck about that because he basically says uh, that's denying all of the actions of humanity that came afterwards. Um, and Alexander frames the role of the king as to be the most human, um, down to his wish for the grail is to let him be human again, not to conquer the world, but to give him a body so that he can be fully a person again. Um, he thinks it's the role of the king to be the loudest and the boldest and uh, to feel the most all of the time uh the the king rather than uh, a function is an exemplar of humanity um which are just two fundamentally opposed views um 
the issue with this scene is Arturia isn't Arturia isn't framed as, like, offering a counterpoint. Like, the entire argument is framed as her being on the back foot and scrambling to defend a flawed ideology. Well, yeah. both of these ideologies are dumb as fuck. Yeah, like, Saber... Uh, I'm trying to find the exact quote here. Um, but Saber, you know, sort of attempts to fight back with the argument that, like... Like, the... the um, the attitude that Alexander and uh, Gilgamesh ascribe to are those of tyrants. And, like, as much as they patronize her for failing her, uh, for failing her people, like, ultimately, all three of their kingdoms collapsed. Like, um, all, all three attempts, regardless of, like, the ideology that they ascribed to as to what of it what a king was none of it worked uh and that is not framed as a valid counterpoint uh mm-hmm. which is funny because that is absolutely the most valid counter- counterpoint of kingship is that ultimately regardless of what a king tries to be no matter what you do it is all a various flavor of being a tyrant and it's all destined to fail because it, because it is not built by the people of the country. Um, it is not like the foundation of it is not in those people. It is just in a person. And once that person dies, that goes away. It falls apart, and maybe another king rises to do their own thing, but it's not going to be the same country. It's not going to be the same ideals. It's just going to be a constant shifting and a constant, like, Jenga tower on the verge of collapse. Um, But Saber is not allowed to um, challenge Alexander in that way. Like, of course, she's not going to challenge Archer, no one is going to char- challenge Archer's opinion because he's They Gilgamesh. basically ignore him. Yeah, like, they ignore him because they know better. Um, but even Alexander is not, per- is portrayed as 100% confident in his own opinions. And Saber is not shown to be a, like an equal which doesn't make sense because she's fucking King Arthur. <laughs> like, the, this is such a patronizing scene Yeah, that Gen writes for her. What? This, it, Gen Urobuchi and Fate Zero as a whole patronizing to women? Like, Who would have guessed? She, I'm shocked. She is never allowed to be treated seriously by anyone. Um, and this is so frustrating because, like, we see her have, like similar arguments with Shiro in the future and like she isn't so easily shaken like yeah like Shiro Shiro butts heads with her constantly in Fate Stay Night and even though Shiro is occasionally right about the arguments he makes to Saber Saber is not exactly wrong either and like Saber is allowed to be firm in her position, uh, 
without being portrayed as childish uh, and irresponsible, but yeah. rather as noble and tragic. Mm-hmm. Uh, She's allowed to be wrong without the book condes or the work condescending to her in that same way. Yes, exactly. Um, whereas Ryder gets to come out of this conversation being the cool guy, <laughs> being the guy who wins the argument, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, look, I love Ryder. I think he is a cool guy. Dog but, shit, dude. But also... He's just a dog shit, man. But also, like, yeah, he is not a good man. He is a fun man. He is not a good man. Like, Saber is 100% correct when she calls him a tyrant. Um, yeah. And the fact that that just gets hand-waved is eh, don't worry incredibly about it. frustrating. Because, um, like, the real answer here is that None of them should have been kings. There shouldn't be kings yeah. at all. Kings should not exist. Um, and in a better world, in a better work, if Gen was more intelligent about this <clears throat> is this particular subject, or at the very least more introspective about it, this this would be sort of a great situation. For Saber to see, like, the other two people who call themselves kings and to be challenged on and to be genuinely challenged on what kingship means and not to come away with it thinking that Ryder and Archer are better kings, but to come away thinking, am I really so different from them? Were the end results of my actions really so much different from the end results of their own, even though we had wildly different ideals and personalities, is there ultimately a meaningful difference when it comes to what a king does and what a king means and what a king causes and what, like the damage the king leaves in their wake? Yep. That would be fucking rad. That is not what happens. <laughs> Yeah, I, th there is no point where, like, uh, where Saber, like, actually has a moment of introspection about the inherent violence of kingship or about, like, the violence in her desire to undo the work of others past her time. Like, yeah, uh, it, it's it's frustrating because, like, as like as Fate Stay Night, I think, makes pretty clear um, Saber's ideals, which she like desperately wants to believe were the noble and just ways of going about things still ended in like terrible slaughter. And she even like admits to herself that in order to properly like go through with her ideals to try and save Britain, she had to make the same sort of utilitarian utilitarian choices that Kuritsugu does which, again, I wish this novel was better about, like, better about, like, act actually, like, 
cutting to the core of the matter and showing that they are not as different as they think they are, um, which has like largely been ignored, which is funny considering Fate Stay Night. Um, but like Saber is not all that different from Kuritsugu in terms of like how she accomplishes her goals. It's just she dresses them up in no- nobility and propriety and the knight's code. Um, mm-hmm. And having a scene where, like, that could maybe force those scales to fall down from her eyes, even though, granted, that would kind of mess up the continuity of her route in Fate Stay Night. Because yeah, she has, I mean, like, that. Who gives a shit, honestly? <laughs> like, but, but I mean, like, that's the actual problem here is. Yeah. Uh, uh, Saber fundamentally cannot have any character progression or character movement. Yeah, because she yeah. has to be the same in because she has to just have have this particular personality in Fate Stay Night. Yep. Because like Fate Stay Night is where she gets all that characterization. Um. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But Sa- Saber is really. I mean, she she is she has certainly done injustice by just the way that Gen treats her, but also she has done injustice by the nature of what Fate Zero had to be. Yep. Um, and that, like, what can you really do with Saber without, m- like, making a paradox for Fate Stay Night? <laughs> or, like, having yeah. to come up with some elaborate way to, like, reset her personality or like the any progress she makes yeah i I mean there's just nothing you can do saber is going to have to remain the same and have no character progression yeah so yeah as as fun as as this particular scene is at times it is also mired in a lot of things that i find to be incredibly frustrating Uh um it ends pretty cool, though. Uh, well, actually, it, it technically ends with, like, Saber just having to, like, stew in her anger, which is not cool. But, like, the sort of penultimate part of it uh, is Assassin uh, appearing to try and ambush them. Well, actually, I, it's like, I think... Uh, one of the servants, like, noticing that they're being observed by Assassin, and, like, uh, Ryder getting up and unleashing his second noble phantasm, which is essentially a reality marble, um, Mm -hmm. where he summons the Ionian Hetoiroi, his mightiest soldiers, uh, who are all bros with him, uh, and each of them is, like, equivalent to a servant and they all just fucking annihilate the assassins yeah i I mean i I do think there is like something interesting here in um the entirety of alexander's strength being the support and uh uh service of the people he worked with uh who support him like that there's something interesting there it just doesn't really feel earned from alexander yeah uh and also the fact that, like, you know, the the support that Alexander uh, got from his troops mostly amounted to 
trampling and annihilating other cultures. Mm-hmm. So, so like, yep. yeah, he does. Like, he does talk a big game, and like he he, and this is partly what makes him a fun character with Waver, because like he sort of portrays this with Waver as well, and that he is able to like, um, be this charismatic individual that builds people up. Um, to make them the best they can be. But ultimately, it is... Even if Alexander may sincerely like and adore all these people, it is still primarily in service of him conquering the world. Yep. But of course, that isn't touched upon. Oh, God, no. (laughs) Because then, Don't be absurd. because then we would have to question the nature of kingship and of empire, and there is no interest in doing that. Oh fuck no 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 no! These these books are not interested in like any material reality. They are interested in the metaphorical reality. Yeah. Uh, so that's the end, basically. Yep, that's that's the book. It sure was a book, technically. Yeah, there is a post face, but it, there's nothing interesting there either. It's, um, it, all it is is just like a a teaser for what's gonna happen in the next one, really. Um, yeah, I compared to the previous light novel, there were more things about this one that I enjoyed, but at the same time. I still don't think it's particularly good. No, I also do not feel that way. Uh, it still manages to make me very angry at portions. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, so, yeah, we got two more of these to go. <laughs> yeah, we sure do. Yeah, so next time we will read volume three, The Scattered Ones. One of these fuckers is is gonna die, right? Like, I can't remember how how like it progresses in the anime, but like I'm pretty sure some of these assholes get killed off at some point. I think Caster's gonna die pretty soon here. Yeah, because he gets because he gets fucking wrecked by Excalibur. That's true. He does. I forgot about that. Yeah. So eventually, Gen will allow Saber to do a thing. We'll see. (laughs) Who knows? That might be anime only. <laughs> God, can you imagine if it fucking was? God, I, I'm pretty sure it's not because, like, like obviously you're making a joke, but like that, like that is something that he has to do because Saber yeah. talks about it in Fate's Day Night, like where she talks about like Kyrie redirecting a ship in the in the river so that like mm-hmm. her Excalibur didn't wreck the whole fucking town. <laughs> so it's gonna happen it has to he is contractually obligated to make it happen see so you say these things <laughs> but um we'll see alright uh I don't have anything else do you? yeah yeah me either that, that, I think that's good for this episode S- see y'all next time uh do we wanna do where we can be found or oh yeah find- you can you can find me at Stills the GM on Twitter. Um, and you can also listen to the other podcast I'm on, which is Idol on Playtest, uh, where 
a new season just started up, uh, Eidolon Disco and Eidolon Ska. I am on the Eidolon Disco group. Uh, so if you've if you listen to this podcast but never tried that one out, uh, good time to jump on. Uh, it's a pretty fun actual listen. play it's podcast. Uh, I'm Sierra. You can find me at Rhetoric Acrobat. I don't do other things. <laughs> well, you do, just not for internet consumption. Yeah, none of you fuckers get to know what else I do. It's a secret. Yeah, she just has hobbies like a normal person. <laughs> That normal might be generous, but yes. Anyways, bye. Bye.